Well, hello and welcome to the Tim Masso podcast. Today we have a special guest from the Waiting List podcast, which I highly recommend. We have none other than Lung Lung. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun because we're talking about new watches and we're riffing on the best and maybe even the worst of 2021 to date. This year, the first year in our lives that there has been no planned Basel World, no planned SIHH, and the rollouts have been slow and almost continuous. It's like a full model year spread out over 365 days. So what has impressed you so far? Keeping in mind, there will be more releases. What are your favorites to date? Favorites to date? Um, I have to say, I haven't gone to a lot of releases, but then so far, I think the Alange releases have been the best for me. Um, to be very honest, I think for a good one year before COVID, the way that I have shopped for watches usually, um, like I don't deliberately say, hey, it's a new year, let me look for a new piece. I like to be inspired when I least ex um, expect it. So I go to a lot of G2Gs regularly and I like to, through the process of meeting people, suddenly discover a brand, discover a piece, and then go home and research it. And it's a hit and miss thing. Like half the time I research and I end up saying, hey, you know, this is not my kind of thing. Half the time I'm like, okay, I need to understand this reference more. And then I start digging into that reference. And then I start thinking from this reference, which, which um, precious metal, um, which edition really, really interests me. And then it kind of goes from there. So this has been quite a strange year for me. But going back to your question, um, definitely the Elange releases for me. You know, I'm with you there. They had a fantastic year. Keep in mind, there will be more releases. I got to say this year, a lot of my favorite new releases, and I'm a little bit embarrassed here, are variations on existing models. So for example, the build out of the Urwerk UR105, the Tantalum mm -hmm. Hull. I mean, oh my God, I don't, I mean, I know why more Tantalum watches aren't made. It's really hard to work with it. But mm -hmm. given the results with Urwerk and of course the famous Cronmet Bleu from FP Journe, you wonder why more of an effort is made. This 105 is going to be made in 12 pieces. And it, to me, it feels like it should be something always available. There should be more Tantalum watches. Exactly, I agree. But um, what is the reason why people give... I mean, I get it when people like wait a whole year and then something gets released and they just change their precious metal, right? But to me, I've always been like, that's fine because how much do you want them to in like innovate, you know, before it starts to look tacky, right? For lack of a better word. I'm actually okay with it. I mean, I'm totally cool with the variations. We've seen some great ones. Longa, one of their best watches of the year, the triple split now available in rose gold. It's yes. dynamite. I mean, it looked utilitarian, sober, reserved in 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 white gold, but then yeah. you take a look at it in rose with that blue dial, and you're like, I know the contrast. Oh my gosh, I was blown away. And I think, like, I try and imagine that piece in every variation for whatever might come out in the future. And I just don't. I just feel like because the design is so good already, you can just play with any color and it'll look good. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's like, okay, sure. Innovation comes at a premium and I give, you know, special veneration to people who do the, the new thing first, but then you look at the new triple split, you look at the last version of the UR 105 from Urwerk, mm -hmm. you look at, for example, the Senator seventies from Glasuta Original, and they just came out with a turquoise dial and a yellow dial. It's like a different watch. Yeah. Yeah. 
If I, um, what are your thoughts on the new Nautilus though? Because a lot of it's, to me, it's like a hit and miss thing. So 50% of the people are like, I love the green, 50% are like, what's going on? What, what are your thoughts? Am I allowed to love the dial and hate the watch? Love the dial and hate the watch. Yeah, I think so. Because I'm not a big fan of the 5711. No, I mean, for me, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Okay, because a lot of people are going to hate me for saying this. It's not that I hate the watch, I think it's a great watch. It's just the way that it's been hyped up. And any any watch that's hyped up, it just kills it for me. And it just makes me want to avoid it. Yeah, I remember back in our watch you want days in 2015, 2014, we were buying used 5711s for 16, 17, 18,000 dollars, selling them for about 20. Now people are paying $100,000 for 5711s and I'm wondering, is it really five times the watch it was in 2015? No. Mhm. Mm -hmm. Do you think um how long do you think this bubble will last for? I honestly think the bubble's going to last until we get a full idea of the recovery of economies from the pandemic. There's still a lot of places around the world where very wealthy people have nothing to do but buy stuff from their own homes. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing we know about the pricing of the 5711, it's that Patek Philippe charges about $33,000 for the watch. And no matter what Patek Philippe dealer you go to, you're going to pay $33,000 because there will never be a markup or else the dealers would get in trouble with Patek. All of the yeah. price inflation is due to online sales. So 100% okay. of it is due to online sales. As long as people with too much money are mm -hmm. extensively online all day while working from home and mm -hmm. bored because they can't get out, you're gonna see yeah. pricing pressures that move the price of those watches up. When people get out of the house and get away from their computer, you're gonna see a correction. But do you really think it's, the everyday retail like buyer that's doing this? Because I actually think it's the dealers doing this. I think it's definitely, because I'm looking at it from a pre-owned standpoint. I know we've had Nautiluses around $90,000, $100,000. People are mm -hmm. buying them there. And the people who can sell them privately are putting them up on Chrono and they're putting them up for 90 to 100. You know that you're looking at the last gasps of a bubble when dealers are selling watches to each other. And I can yeah. tell you for a fact that we're a volume dealer. You know, we're going to do a few thousand watches a year. People are still buying these to own, just like they're still owning, either buying the Chronomet Blue to own, they're, they're buying the, the Rolex Kermit to own. When you see a lot of inventory online in the hands of dealers and they're just selling to each other, then you get into like the Ferrari bubble model. In the late 80s, dealers mm -hmm. were selling old Ferraris to each other and eventually the Ferrari F40 that cost $150,000 became a $1 million car. And mm -hmm. right around the crash of the international markets in 1987, the dealers were all left holding inventory and there was no customer for that stuff. If I, if we had like 10 5711s, I would mm -hmm. be like, yeah, that's way too much. People aren't buying anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'll think, here's the thing. Dealers participate in social media. And I think okay. social media has driven this because people who have money want what they see in popular, yeah. yeah. So social media has driven it. Dealers have obtained the money, like dealers are the ones who actually sell the watches. But mm -hmm. if you ask, for example, why dealers haven't succeeded in making Laurent Ferrier and Ulysse Norden and Gerard yeah. Perrigo, I mean, if they could choose, they would choose to make those brands colossal because they own those watches cheap. They would love to be able to sell, you know, a Piaget Polo for a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. It's hard to help those brands. There's not. There's only but, so much you can do. 
so why don't they just get together and push a brand? Because I feel like for a while I was seeing a lot of Daniel Roths um, floating around and then the collective man was like advertising it. Then you just kept seeing it on Instagram. So can these dealers come together and say, hey, this is the next brand and let's push up the price? They don't have enough pull because most of the people who have the most popular social media accounts are not dealers. Like if dealers really controlled social media, it'd be one thing. But instead, it's a lot of celebrities and watch space celebrities and people who are, you know, journalists in this. I, you know, I hesitate to call some of the people running these blogs journalists because they also, they also, you know, are dependent on brand patronage to get review watches. But I just think that there is a huge presence for Rolex, Jorn, Patek Philippe, Audemars Piguet, and the social media is in the hands of influencers and celebrities, and mm -hmm. the inventory is in the hands of dealers. And I think if dealers had the ability to build up a brand, they would just say, well, what do we own cheap? You know, it's it's cool watches like Gerard Perregaux and Elise Nardin and Parmigiani Fleurier and yeah. Laurent Ferrier and what other independents aren't valued highly. Uh, you know, I would say Glasuta Original is a group brand that's not valued highly. They would just push these watches and within a few weeks or months, all of a sudden you'd see the vintage 70s panorama date chronograph going for $100,000. Mm -hmm. But the dealers don't control the social media and the social mm -hmm. media personalities don't control the inventory. That's why it's difficult to get the two things synced. Okay, so going back to what you said about the whole Ferrari thing, would you not say that's happening with Richard Mill? So you know, dealers are buying from each other. Yeah, they do. It, it's some Richard Mille watches are priced pretty darn close to reality because I never mm -hmm. imagined. We again, there's there are watches back in the watch you want days, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. Mm -hmm. We would generally buy for less than their retail price, and now every Richard Mille dealer has a wait list because Richard yeah. Mille does own factory boutiques. Mm -hmm. um, I would say if there were no wait list at the RM boutiques there would be no pricing pressure driving up the money that aftermarket vendors are getting. Um, you know, it's the same reason that a Rolex Daytona can cost $30,000 despite being a $13,000 watch. Mm -hmm. If you could go to a Rolex dealer and get one, the aftermarket pricing would collapse. The fact that you can't go to the dealer and get it tells me that there's enough demand that even if demand were cut in half and that watch became a $15,000 Rolex, it would mm -hmm. still be marked up relative to its its price and that's what we're seeing with richard mule even if there were a deflation i mm -hmm. still think there would be enough demand that mm -hmm. you know a watch selling twice its price might sell for i don't know 125 130 percent of its price um, do you think um the age group that's coming in to buy this kind of stuff has changed yeah i do i think that and this has just happened in the last 18 months but the millennials in the United States, they surpassed the baby boomers, the post-war generation, as the most numerous generation. And I think when older people talk about millennials, they imagine kids at spring break in, you know, Daytona yeah. Beach. Well, you know, those people are all 16, 17, eight years, 18 years old. They're, they're not millennials. Millennials are people like me now who are closing in on 40. They've got doctoral degrees and 10-year-old kids. And mm -hmm. they're entering, you know, they're they're entering middle age and their peak earning years, and they're bringing in money in numbers that the, the older generations, they don't have as much now that they're moving to fixed incomes and retirement. So I do think that there's a larger, somewhat wealthier generation coming up. It's not universal that millennials have money, but the sheer number of them and the fact that a lot of the older collectors are selling off their holdings 
means that there is sort of a passing of the torch and you're going to see more and more of the demand for hot brands driven by people who are in their 30s and their 40s rather than their 60s and their 70s okay um coming out of covid right um do you think that there will be a shift in terms of what brands people collect don't necessarily think there'll be a shift in terms of what brands they collect, although there'll be some movements around the margins. Look at some of the brands that just became a big deal in the last, again, 12 to 18 months. Ming, Corona Tokyo, Stefan mm -hmm. Doka. Uh, you're yeah. hearing a lot more about Sartori, Ballard, and Anne Ordain. Yeah. We're seeing a lot more interest in companies that are selling like the $1,000 to $5,000 watch, sometimes six and $7,000 watches, but that are small volume driven by a dominant personality like Armand Ballard or Ming Tian or you know, Stefan Kudoka, people who are basically doing in small volume what Max Booser and Richard Meal and F.P. Journe are doing on somewhat larger volumes, a very personality and design driven independent that mm -hmm. trades on its appearance and exclusivity, those brands are becoming a lot hotter, not to the point where we're seeing people pay, you know, $50,000 for a $6,000 Garrick S4, <laughs> but definitely to the point where when people want to get Ming watches, they're sold out and they can't get them anymore. So they start looking yeah. for the next thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, because I was uh, reading about this thing about people saying that after COVID, you're going to start appreciating craftsmanship more. So then this going to be a bigger shift towards independence and then the big brands are not going to do as well but i totally haven't seen, it's been one year already i don't see that i feel like the prices are still going up for the big brands yeah they definitely are it's not like we're seeing people paying six seven times the price of a garrick s4 or a sartori ballard sb05 what we are seeing is that as long as people are shopping from home with money, you're going to see sold out stock. There are new brands coming in, but they're so small that they're not going to relieve any of the pressure on Audemars Piguet or Richard Mille or Patek Philippe. Uh, you know, FP Journe is going to make 100 Chronomet Bleu a year, and there's a world of people waiting to buy them. So I think really what you need with COVID is, is you need the shift from people staying in their house and working in their house back to outside the house. And I think ultimately that will relieve some of the pricing pressure because people won't be just shopping full time. And there's been like a speculative churn. It's you can see it in everything from real estate to cryptocurrency to watches to cars. Uh, people are looking for places to put their money. Years of dovish monetary policy from central banks around the world has created credit and cheap money that eventually has found its way from companies and institutional investors to individuals. And now they're looking for places to put that money while money is cheap and plentiful. And initially it was things like stocks and bonds and commodities, but now it's it's every class of luxury good, it's real estate, it's speculative things like Ethereum or Dogecoin or Bitcoin. So it, people have to actually get away from all of that and get outside the house to relieve yeah. some of these pressures. That or there needs to be a major correction, which could come for any number of reasons. I found that most economic downturns historically are due to debt. I'm not sure where I see the debt bomb this time around. There's a lot of debt spread around, but nothing as big yeah. and stand out as mortgages back in like 2008. What is your, um, this is going off topic a bit, but what are your thoughts on uh, crypto? Are you a believer? Do you think that the watch industry might eventually adopt this or? 
I think there's, well, they're already adopting it. I mean, you're going to see, I think Watchbox, the company I work for, will take mm -hmm. payment in at very least Bitcoin. I know they will. I know you can buy a watch with Bitcoin at Watchbox. Yeah. And I don't think many companies are going to have the compunctions of Elon Musk and the objection to Bitcoin mining and the energy drain. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think people are thinking it through that far. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that they're, they're not money. They're not money in the traditional sense, because every economics teacher teaches you in economics 101 that money is a store of value, a means of exchange, and a unit of account. And while you yeah. could argue that it's obviously a unit of account, you can easily figure out via the blockchain who owns what and who has owned what. But in terms of a store of value, we've seen Bitcoin time and again drop 50 to 70% of its value. And cyclically it's as reliable as the sun coming up it will shed a huge percentage even a majority of its value and when mm -hmm. elon musk can tank bitcoin in the space of three weeks it's just not a great store of value it's not a dependable one and it's that last part the means of exchange the ability to use it as money when i first wrote about bitcoin to buy watches in 2013 Mm -hmm. Bitcoin was best known as a weird nerd speculative commodity and basically the way money launderers pay each other. It's not yeah. that bad anymore, but mm -hmm. in terms of using it as money, it's not very liquid and not everyone accepts it. So for the most part, what do Bitcoin owners say? They say, hold. What do you hold? Well, you hold assets, not money, like commodities that sit forever, like gold or vintage wine. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not money in the traditional sense that it's insured and reliable and universally accepted. I don't think there's a country in the world where you can't pay for goods and dollars. Um, Bitcoin is not there. So it's got potential, but it seems to have more potential as a commodity and a speculative mm -hmm. investment than, than a type of currency. It's deceptively called a coin when it's really not. Yeah. So what about um, when people, well, I pre-COVID, I was in Hong Kong and I'm based there. And um, a lot of people say they move money using watches. So, um, I mean, since we're talking about Bitcoin, don't you think that there is a higher chance that watches are more liquid and it is a better way to move money for a lot of people? I mean, yeah, if you, if you can settle your debts in Rolex and you've got the Rolex, go for it. I, I would say, sure. Mm -hmm. I, I will mm -hmm. say this, since I want to say... Since 2010, Bitcoin has shed 70% of its value at least three times. At no point in my experience in the watch industry has a Rolex Daytona shed 70% of its value. They didn't lose that much value during the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. So provided you can find someone who will accept the payment, I think you could probably buy just about anything with enough Rolex watches. Whereas I'm not sure that a car dealer is going to accept a chronomet bleu for a, you know, BMW M4 competition. Or something. Yeah. Um, Maybe I'm just not going to. I'm not going to swear by it. Okay. So what about? Um, how do you explain um, brands like Hublot, like Frank Mueller, that just used to be the thing, and then now they have lost all that value, and uh, just people I, don't want them anymore. Yeah, overproduction. It's overproduction. That's one of the problems. There is no shortage of Hublot. You go online, you can find every Hublot watch readily available. 
There were a lot mm -hmm. of gray market sales of those brands. Franck Muller notably did not control its international distribution. So if you think of Rolex, Rolex USA, you know, Rolex is selling its own watches in the United States. Rolex has a presence in Hong Kong. It has a presence in China. It has a presence in Japan. It sells mm -hmm. its own watches in every market. Franck Muller was probably the last large watch brand that did not control its distribution. It would sell its watches to regional distributors who could then do just about anything they wanted to move that metal, mm -hmm. which would often mean selling the watches to gray market dealers, um, listing them as pre-owned and selling them at a huge discount, uh, shuffling <laughs> them off to Costco, which is like a big warehouse store we have where there's always like a stand with luxury watches. And you're like, yeah. how the hell did that Omega get there? Well, that's yeah. so, Costco does vintage watches, right? I remember I was trying to Google for some vintage um, AP and then I had a link to Costco. inside Costco? Yeah, uh, well, there is like a little stand in Costco. And let me just make sure my connection here is not breaking up. Well, I think we're good. Um, but inside of Costco, there's a little stand where you'll see watches, none of which are being sold by authorized dealer Costco. Costco is an authorized dealer of only one brand that I'm aware of, and that's Invicta. So, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So that has, yeah, I mean, your authorized dealer has a, um, a pizza stand. So yeah, that's the way it is with Costco and watches. So when you, I've seen Patek Philippe, Omega, Rolex, Tag Heuer, all in Costco. And those are all from dealers that dumped inventory. So with Franck Muller, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of dumping of inventory because they couldn't sell them at the volumes and retail prices they were asking. Franck has been gone for years. Vartan uh, Sermak is he runs the company and basically he's overexposed the brand. They had one design that people knew well. They allowed that to become overexposed. They allowed that to become a little bit tired. And unlike some brands, which grew effectively, and Hublot is a good example of that. Hublot was dead in the water in the 90s, but the hottest brand of the 2000s and like the first half of the 2010s. Um, so Hublot re reinvented itself under Jean-Claude Biver after 2004 when he became a stakeholder and, and the CEO. But then Hublot in turn, I mean, as Franck Muller was winding down and Hublot was winding up, um, Hublot was an exciting and fresh and innovative brand. By the late 2010s, Hublot had made too many versions of the same watch. The watches were too big in a world that wanted smaller watches. I can't wear a 48 millimeter watch. You can wear a 48 millimeter watch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the cushion power is dead, but the basic Hublot watches are still 44 to 45 millimeters. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. There's a reason why the best selling Hublot model line today is the classic Fusion. Mm -hmm. It used to be the Big Bang. Yeah. People yeah, yeah, people want smaller Hublots and Hublot's doing its best there. But between making too many watches, watches that are too big, not being willing to change directions, and also too many limited editions, how many Orlinskis, how many Song Bleu, how mm -hmm. many variations of the Mecca 10 can we possibly see before we get the general idea and we move on to something fresher? So you think having too many limited editions of something can actually kill the watch itself. Yeah, I do. I, I would like to say that the only thing that really kills appeal of a watch is overproduction, like too many units, too many pieces. But I've also mm -hmm. found that even if there's only like 800 examples of a certain mm -hmm. watch in the world, if that's 800 examples broken, broken up over 20 editions, people tend to perceive it as much less desirable. 
Now, if you're Hublot and you're making tens of thousands of watches a year, broken up over hundreds of different models and editions, you're doing damage that is going to take years to fix. I'm not saying that Hublot is a bad brand, just that there's probably too many models, too many pieces, too many variations. And if there's a lesson to be learned from Rolex, it's that scarcity and consistency have a lot of value. You can't get a whole lot of different versions of the Submariner. It's not like there's one that's a chronograph and there's one that's a perpetual calendar and there's one that's 50 millimeters and one that's 40 and one that's 45. With Hublot, you see all that variation and while that works well in the short term, people get burned out. Rolex has proved that if you keep your watches scarce and you offer just a few iconic versions, people will want them more. Okay. So do you think it genuinely, like there is a shortage right now? Hold on there, I think we've got a connection issue. Let's wait for this mm. to come back. A, a shortage of, of what? I'm sorry, I got cut off there. So do you, do you think right now the factories are actually like slow in producing or um, this is deliberate, like they're just controlling the output. You mean with Rolex specifically or factories in general? Just factories in general. I think for the most part, Swiss watch production has not been terribly impacted by supply chain problems. Most mm -hmm. of their suppliers are based in Switzerland. There are mm -hmm. some lower end brands, Bauman Mercier, Tag Heuer, that might use imported parts from East Asia to keep the prices mm -hmm. low. And those supply chains will be disrupted. But we're looking, I mean, we've been talking mostly of high-end brands here. I think Rolex um, is yeah. the most affordable brand we've we've discussed at length. I think the supply is mostly being constrained by factories that are looking to achieve scarcity, uh, consistent retail prices, healthy wait lists, and a robust aftermarket. I don't necessarily think we're looking at a shortage of watches overall, because if you wanted to go buy a Longa, yeah, you have to apply now for their pieces, but literally no application gets denied. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, can, I don't think- yeah. can, can you define um, healthy wait list? Yeah, I, I think enough that a person doesn't feel he can take access for granted. So I would say a healthy wait list is gonna be somewhere between one and three months where it feels like something special that you had to wait for, but not exhausting. It shouldn't take as long as the service of a complicated watch. It shouldn't take so long that you're almost guaranteed to be in a new model year by the time you get your watch. Uh, it shouldn't take so long that you lose interest. Again, this is all subjective, but for me, one to three months is okay. It shows me that there's a healthy demand for the watch and that the company is committed to filling the orders and honoring the client's patience. Don't test my patience, uh, but I'm certainly willing to wait for something that's good. It's like at a restaurant that's really good. You're willing mm -hmm. to wait a little bit longer. When you go to McDonald's, you expect to be served immediately because it's not very special. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think if you walked into a great steakhouse and you ordered a steak and it was there three yeah. minutes later, you'd be you'd wondering what's up. Um, mm -hmm. so, so I think there's something special about waiting a little bit for a watch thinking, well, you know, it takes some time to make this watch, to test it, quality control, a chronometer certification. It's worth the wait. Uh, whereas, you know, again, you can go to Costco and you get an Invicta as quickly as you can get a hot dog. That, mm -hmm. That's not luxury. <laughs> you heard of, um, have you heard of people talking about writing essays to get a watch? Like going into college? 
Yeah, because I've <laughs> I've heard of um I have friends who are in Canada trying to get rich mill and they have to write a two page essay to justify why they deserve one. That's BS. I, I think the only requirement for buying a watch should be that you have the money and yeah. you know that, that you take the time to to wait for the watch to arrive if necessary. I, I think realistically for watches that are scarce, it might be reasonable to say, okay, one customer, one watch, we're not going to let you buy five of them. Uh, but I, I think mm -hmm. asking people to jump through hoops shows disrespect. I think the if the watch is worth what you're asking for it, if it's correctly priced, you shouldn't have to throw in circus-like tricks. Because then you're telling me that my, my watch is worth $13,000 plus two hours of your time well, no, it's not worth my, I, my time was spent at work earning the money. If you're telling me I need to give you money and an essay, you're saying that your watch is underpriced. Why not just charge another $500 and skip the essay? So you, the, what they're telling me is that they're playing with the customer in bad faith. They're underpricing the watch and they're asking you to come up with the remainder of the value in, in something that they consider to be a cost equivalent, which I just find disrespectful. They may as well ask you to beg. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, have you heard of any other interesting stories of how people have managed or will try and get watches aside from bundling this and that? I mean, just in terms of other than wait lists, money and yeah. essay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard of cases where people have flown to Geneva to speak to a certain young watchmaker to introduce mm -hmm. their entire family and, and beg claiming the watch will be an heirloom that would be passed down to my son and then his son's sons. So they brought their whole family to Geneva to beg for <laughs> a contemporary chronometer. God. So yeah, there's that. Okay. Uh, I've heard of people flying around the world to make their pitch to a boutique in you know Hong Kong or Singapore. And you know that's one thing if you live in Thailand to go to Singapore. It's yeah. another thing if you live in, say, Brazil. That's not a short trip. My God, in Hong Kong, I hear a lot of stories about um, walking into ADs and then drawing out a family tree and being like, "Do you know who I am?" And, and then they're like, "Get lost. We don't care." Yeah, I would say that too. Honestly, I think it's ridiculous right. to have to write an essay. I also think it's absurd for a person in a boutique to have to take seriously a claim that you're related to Napoleon or the Queen of England, <laughs> some dead czar. That's just stupid. <laughs> I'd rather have the essay than that. Yeah, me too. What about um, what's on your list? Like, what is something that you really want? Oh, I want stuff that no one wants. That's what I'm, I'm in great condition. Like if I were to build up a collection, there'd be a Ulysse Nardas and not a Silesium, which is the minute repeater of alarm watches and one of the best travel timers on the market. I would want a Ball Engineer 2 Magneto S, which is probably the most feature dense sub $3,000 used watch you can pick up. Count me in for the 2017 50 Fathom Satin Titanium Blue Dial. I'm all about that. That's a watch that sells used for around 10 grand on a retail over, over 15, I believe. I want watches nobody wants. The MIH watch, the first one from the 2000s designed by Christian Gaffner, Ludwig Oxlin, and Paul Gerber. I want that watch. You can get those for less than five grand. These are all the watches I want. I want watches that are beautifully handmade. Armand Strom mm -hmm. made incredible mm -hmm. TA-based engraved watches during the 2000s and the 90s. And to my eye, those look incredible. Those are handmade watches for the price of like a new Seamaster. Um, mm -hmm. And again, you can go on Chrono right now, find them used for a few thousand dollars. To me, 
that's the ultimate in handcrafted individuality because they're done by hand. No two will be alike. You know, I'd say, is there, oh, keep going, keep going. Sorry, is there a limit? Is there a limit to, do you limit yourself to how many pieces do you eventually want to keep or? Yeah. Do you feel like it's a long process and you just keep curating and curating? When I feel like I'm not wearing certain watches, unless there's a deeply seated emotional reason for keeping them, like it's grandpa's watch or it's my graduation watch, when I'm not wearing watches, that's my sign that there's too many. And the first thing I'll probably do is I will you know, sell those watches. And then if I feel like there are watches that I would wear, then I'll add back some, some volume to the collection. And if I'm wearing, let's say I go down to six watches, but I see two I like, I'll bring those two in. If I'm wearing all eight of them, then I'm not gonna sell. But if I'm down to six watches or five watches that I actually wanna wear, uh, it's just unreasonable. It's not like they're gaining any great value. These, the watches I buy aren't Pateks, they aren't Rolex, they aren't AP. So I would rather swap them out and have the money so I could buy what I want or buy what I want and actually wear it. How do you decide what you wear like daily? For the most part, I'm a one watch guy. So that's very easy. Yeah. Where am I Zen EZM? But mm -hmm. if I'm going to a concert, it's usually going to be some vintage band. I like old metal and hard rock bands from the 70s and 80s. So I'll wear my JLC E877 Snowdrop Memovox. It's an old alarm watch. It's mm -hmm. a very 70s lugless case. It's perfectly round. Uh, so I'll wear that to go see the Blue Oyster Cult. If, uh, if I'm going to go, I guess if I were going to a college reunion, I'd probably wear my old graduation watch because it carries a lot of meaning from that time in my life. And if I am going to be, I don't know, if I'm going to a vintage event or if I'm going to a collector event, I might throw on my old Boulevard Accutron Space View from 1974. And if I'm going to an industry event, a lot of times it's going to be my Swatch watch, my System 51, or it's going to be my Zin, because politically, those are non-controversial watches. Um, no one is ever going to be angry that you wore a Zin instead of a Longa or a Patek. Mm -hmm. And no one's ever going to be upset that you wore a Swatch instead of a Grand Seiko or a Crador. They're just neutral watches. So it's almost like being a diplomat. And that's like my passport. So if you go to these industry industry events, um, do you think the other people th really think about what they're wearing and what kind of message they want to send out? You mean like the dealers or the, the owners Just of the company? The, the, uh, the other, say the other media people, like, do you think they think about this very carefully or? Oh yeah, I think they do. I think they'll either wear a watch that's a good match for the brands they're interviewing with or talking with that day or they'll wear a watch that can't possibly be controversial. Like I would not go to a meeting with F.P. Journe. I've interviewed him in French in the past. I don't, I'm not, I don't speak French well, but well enough to conduct an interview. I would not go into an interview with F.P. Journe wearing a David Kondo watch because there's a rivalry there and the rivalry is real. I wouldn't go into a private product showing with Rolex wearing an Omega. Okay. I wouldn't go to a meeting with Audemars Piguet wearing an Hublot Big Bang. Honestly, I wouldn't. It would be seen as disrespectful. I just wouldn't mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Do you um, do you look at people and try and read them by what they're wearing? People that you don't. No, you no. 
I okay. would make mistakes. I think if I tried to judge someone by his watch, I, I would make an I would make a mistake because what I'm reading into that watch isn't a reflection of that person. It's me projecting my prejudice about that watch onto the person. So I'm really just reading myself in a mirror. And all I'm learning mm -hmm. is what I think of the watch. And you know, if I think that an Ublow is all style and no substance and it's a my, you know, it's a shallow person's watch, that's me being shallow for making assumptions. The person might have gotten that watch from his wife. Uh, it might be a gift from his wife's family from a wedding. It might be something that, you know, he bought for himself after years of saving up for his goal. It's, you know, a reflection of real character and discretion and patience and self-control. It might be the exact opposite of what I assume. So I try not to make a judgment. Uh, I, I will ask mm -hmm. questions to help me better understand, though. So I, I'll definitely ask mm -hmm. about it. Um. I want to ask a question that I'm often asked, um, but I don't think that I'm the right person to actually answer it. So what are your thoughts on what is the reason behind the lack of women in the, not in the industry, but um, who buy watches as compared to men who want to get into watches? I would say historically, it's the kind of hobby where men probably don't accessorize much. And this has long been the one socially acceptable accessory for a man. Like mm -hmm. it's not always acceptable for a man to wear many rings or necklaces or bracelets. Mm -hmm. A man probably isn't going to carry an external bag. Like, you know, men will have, will have wallets or they might have a backpack, but mm -hmm. you know, I've had a lot of friends who are women who eventually get into watches and they add the watches to their collection of bags and necklaces and bracelets and earrings. And these are not things that men can always wear. Like a man might wear like gold chain when he's at the beach or something, or mm -hmm. when he's, you know, I don't know, hanging out at the mall. But yeah. if you showed up to a job interview wearing a huge gold <laughs> necklace with pearls as a guy, people <laughs> would think, you know, people would ask me, who, who the hell do you think you are? Like Mick Jagger? Are you a rock star? <laughs> you know, are, what is this TMZ? You know, they would they would be asking like, you know, are you glitterati? Yeah. Am I supposed to know who you are in advance? Because you, you, you dress like a celebrity or you dress yeah. like someone who is maybe a model or something. It's mm -hmm. just not normal. But if a woman walked into an interview with, with a big necklace and, and earrings, there'd be nothing strange about it. Um, it's just more socially acceptable. So for years, guys kind of had this one outlet. You can, you can go into an interview wearing a nice watch and it'll be looked at as appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. If you go into a job interview with an enormous red alligator skin bag, again, it's just, it's not wrong. It's just something that's, that's unusual and it would take a lot of courage and I think individuality as a guy to, to do that. Uh, so mm -hmm. women have had a lot of options for a long time, whereas men, even they can't even bring themselves always to wear jewelry bracelets even if it's a gold bracelet it's got to have a rolex attached it's like yeah people always talk about smart watches killing yeah. the mechanical watch what'll really kill mechanical watches is the day the guy realizes he doesn't need a watch attached to the bracelet mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now Agreed. women women have come to watches because more and more i think Ultimately, there are more guys who might carry bags now and more guys who might wear bracelets. It is more acceptable. And there are more women who are looking for different ways to accessorize and also taking more interest in the machine. You know, I think ultimately we're seeing more women who collect cars. 
We're seeing more women who have an interest in aviation. We're seeing more women who have an interest in, you know, all sorts of like nerd spheres where, where guys used to dominate, like comic books. And I think culture is becoming a little bit more androgynous in a way that makes it acceptable for men to like think of accessorizing the way women do and women to sort of look at men's accessories and say, you know, I can embrace this and I can embrace it in a way that's not just small or diamond set or quartz. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. What about the advertising space and in general, do you think they're doing a good job? Like bringing in non-traditional buyers? Mm, just bringing new buyers, yeah. I don't think that watch advertising is terribly effective because I've seen tons of ads for Tag Heuer, for example. I don't think there are many companies with a bigger ad budget than Tag Heuer. We're talking billboards, we're talking magazines, we're talking event sponsorship and celebrity ambassadors. And over the last two years, Tag Heuer has gotten clobbered. I, I, I can't think of many brands that have suffered more over the last two years than Tag Heuer. And mm -hmm. if it were just a matter of advertising relentlessly, I think Tag would probably be one of the most popular brands in the world. Uh, you can look at some brands like Patek Philippe. They mm -hmm. have very limited advertising. You know, mm -hmm. if there's the famous, you never really own a Patek Philippe ad. Yeah. When was the last time you saw one of those? Um, probably. Never. Like online, like people are like, hey, remember this ad from 2001? <laughs> So if you look at the brands that are really successful now, they're brands that have tapped into social media and influencers and platforms like YouTube and Instagram. And I believe that that's where a lot of the success in promotion occurs, whether it's mm -hmm. by the brands themselves or people who just like the brands and want to show off mm -hmm. or influencers who are strategically selected by the brands. I've gone on Instagram and I found whole watch brands, you know, multi-million dollar brands that have fewer followers on Instagram than I do. And I'm not a major Instagrammer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you, um, I'm sure you get approached a lot to work with brands. How do you deal with that and staying neutral and saying, no, I just like, I'm Tim also, I'm sticking to this brand. I don't want, I want to be neutral. Yeah. I think at Watchbox at any time I could receive any brand of watch and I'm going to have to showcase what that watch is and also what it isn't. So I need to stay fairly neutral because I could receive any brand at any time. Govberg is our authorized dealer side and they have a couple of brands. They have Rolex, they have Jorn, they have Patek Philippe. But on the pre-owned side, I'm going to have to represent Omega, which is Rolex's rival. I'm going to have to represent the Grunefelds and De Betun, F.P. Jorn's rival. I'm going to have to represent Vacheron and, and Longa, which we don't carry on the Gutberg side, but I'm going to have them to sell on the Watchbox side. So while I have been approached, I think oftentimes because my job is to just explain the inventory at Watchbox, I can't take sides. While I can have favorite brands, I can't mm -hmm. act on that. Like I can't just claim Jager Lecoultre makes the greatest watches ever and everything else, forget it, mm -hmm. it's crap. I wouldn't say that. Um, mm -hmm. And then also, even though I'm critical of some of Hublot's specific marketing choices, I also rec you know, recognize that there are some Hublot watches that are absolute standouts. And mm -hmm. the more I'm honest about that from an unforced standpoint, the more credibility I'll have when I say that, yo, you really need to consider the Hublot caliber 1300. It's a great movement. Whereas mm -hmm. I think if I started posting sponsored posts that Hublot paid for, no one would take me seriously those times when I say, by the way, this is an Hublot with an incredible movement and you can trust me on this. This is, this is one of those Hublots that's about the movement, not the style. 
you know, if I came out with something that's one of the Hublot gem set, tutti frutti, uh, you know, big mm -hmm. bang type models, it would be, I would lose all credibility. So in the short term, the offer to work with a brand is flattering and I have had them, but in the mm -hmm. long run, I think when you sell off access, you lose credibility. Okay. Um, what's your, what are your thoughts on of these straps and watch rolls, um, watch stands and all the stuff that's popping up on Instagram and other platforms. Do you think that um, this is a market that is still not saturated, not uh, and not on, I wouldn't say untapped, but like there's still a lot of room for growth? Yeah, or do you think that's just done? Yeah, like straps, uh, rolls, watch stands and trays oh, and all that. Yeah, that's forever. There's a lot of growth. There's a lot of potential for growth there because you look at the price of a strap, then you look at the price of a watch. And for the price of even a modest luxury watch, you could buy straps all week long. You could go crazy. So I think there will always be a lot of aftermarket strap vendors, though I do think that increasingly you're going to see classes of watches like those from Hublot, those from Vacheron, those from IWC and Cartier, where you have proprietary quick release systems. We're seeing them from Audemars yeah. Piguet even now. And it's yeah. going to be very hard to build a custom strap for that kind of watch. Maybe not impossible, but darn close. So I think custom straps are forever in the world of older watches, vintage watches, and watches that are still built with conventional lugs. But the more integrated bracelets we see, the more quick release systems we see, uh, the fewer opportunity there will be for independent strap makers to craft straps for those watches. Watch rolls, though, I don't see anything stopping people from, from buying watch rolls all day long. And I think there's going to be a lot of room for more people to sell watch, watch rolls all the way through. All right. This is our intermission. We're having some technical difficulties. Lung Lung is back right now. Can you hear me? Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. It's watch okay. rolls are forever. That, that aftermarket mm -hmm. is infinite. There's no constraint on those. All right. Mm, well... You know, I can't think of any other questions. I, I think. Um, how about we jump back to new watches? We, we close out with a few okay. new watches. I know we were talking about variations early on. I'm dying with the 10 piece limited edition DB27 Titan Hawk from Debatoon. Yeah. Same watch course. from 2018, but it's got a green dial. Am I shallow mm -hmm. for liking a dial? No, but I do see a pattern here. You like the dial, not the watch, but this, I'm sure you like the whole thing, right? Yeah, it's like they've perfected it. The, the black dial, the silver dial, those were nice enough. But green, yeah. even though it's not innovative in 2021, I love it. Oh, I know what I want to ask. So with the fashion industry, every year they get together and they're like, this is the Pantone color. I think that's how it works. And they're like, we're going to do this. And everyone chooses the same color. So how does it work for watches? How do they all say, hey, we're going to use green? I had a discussion about this with Elizabeth Dore of Quill and Pad, and she said mm -hmm. they all look over each other's shoulders and they know what's coming. They get together, they eat in the same restaurants, they go to the same bars yeah. and pubs, and everyone sort of has an idea of what's coming, which is how every watch brand could release a green dial the same year, or back in 2015 when everyone had a blue dial. Now, mm -hmm. the real question is whether the green dial trend is going to have the same legs as the blue dial trend, because we're still in the blue dial trend and it's six years later. Whereas I'm not sure that green is going to last more than one or two model years. 
I don't think so too. But then we had the whole rainbow phase as well. So with the rainbow phase, I'm thinking, do they all get together and use the same supplier? And then sh and then they take turns to choose like who gets the highest quality. Oh, I, I think realistically, I, I, I got to be honest, the rainbow trend totally flew over my head. I, I can't remember the rainbow trend. Wh which watches am I missing here? Okay, so I would say it was 2019, actually. So you had the, so the Daytona rainbows have always been there, right? They came out with the yellow gold, white gold, rose gold. And then, then you could see AP did it. Uh, Roger Dubuis did it. Everyone did it. Everyone had a diamond bezel. And it was just never ending. Chanel had it. Everyone was doing it. And it got to the point that, I just thought it was overdone. I just thought it started to look very trashy, but then I really just thought, okay, you guys must be all using the same suppliers and you must get together and say, okay, Rolex gets the first pick and then here you go. And then, you know, you go down the list and- It's like pigs. Yeah, it's like <laughs> the strongest baby pig gets the best. <laughs> get forced down. Oh, okay, yeah, absolutely. They're they're definitely they're definitely looking over each other's shoulders, and this is going to burn out pretty quick because green is not a mainstream color. I think we yeah. saw a brief. You know, you're right with with gems. We definitely saw a rainbow trend, uh, not so much with dials, but what we did see a few years back was like a salmon dial. Yes. Phrase. It lasted about two 2018. years. Yeah. yeah. That, but I think salmon is still a color that's widely accepted. So blue, salmon, these will stay. But green, purple, I think one or two years max. Yeah, I agree with you right there. I would say green, purple, burgundy. These are going to be novelty colors. And I suspect next year we'll see something entirely different. We also saw for about, I don't know, maybe three or four years, a gradient dial craze, where not mm -hmm. only were dials colorful, but they were either dark in the center and light at the edge or light in the center or dark in the edge. And yeah. everyone was doing it. Yeah. And I think there's more and more um, brands who are doing, not piece unique, but... Um, that giving customers a chance to be more hands-on with deciding certain elements of the watch. I mean, like Debethune always had, had the starry various, right? That you could choose the date and then where the stars were. And then with AP, they, had, they have the Minna repeater now working with Anita Poche, right? So you can basically decide what's on your dial. Yeah, if you've got unlimited money, AP will do custom, yeah. Arnold and Son will do custom, the Grunefeld, mm -hmm. the Batoon will be, do custom. Vacheron has this incredible, like Cabinotier, which is basically, uh -huh. you know, whatever your budget can can imagine, uh, we can realize where, you know, you have watches using multi-axial tourbillon and chiming oh. systems and perpetual uh -huh. calendars. You can get dragons engraved on the case and mm -hmm. gems set on the dial and miniature painting. So yeah, at that super high-end level, there's customization. And then the lower end too, like with Anne Ordain, you could spend maybe mm -hmm. two, $3,000 and get a highly customized watch or at a slightly higher price that. point, yeah. like three to $10,000. You can customize a watch from, Lud you know, from Ox und Junior, Ludwig Oxlund. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on companies like MAD? You know, when they take a watch and then they just you know, blacken the whole thing or they carve on it and stuff? You know, there's always going to be room for customization. I think it's interesting that we're seeing more of it embraced by factories. So if you look at James Thompson and Black Badger, he does a lot of different things. He does his Fordite dials, Fordite case trim, various different types of loom. You look mm -hmm. at Bamford becoming a factory customizer for the Louis yeah. Vuitton Louis Hennessy watch group. And I really feel like just like Singer in, in the car space has taken 9-11s and dramatically upgraded them in ways that are not factory stock, 
but still mm -hmm. valued highly by the market as though they were factory. I think there's room for companies like Les Artisans de Genève at the various highest level or, or yeah. Bamford at kind of a mid-market level yeah. to come in and customize a watch and, and not destroy its value. Because previously, you know, we, we always joke about the Diamond District in New York City, where yeah. a guy will take a $5,000 watch add yeah. $20,000 worth of diamonds and wind up with a $5,000 watch. <laughs> no one wants it. <laughs> but I actually remember um, I used to follow the prices at Banford and I used to think the prices were cheaper, no? They were at once upon a time yeah. because when Bamford yeah. did Rolex and Bamford did unauthorized customs, mm -hmm. people didn't regard them as Rolexes. They regarded them as Bamford and Rolex expressly noted that they would not service those watches yeah. they would not support them if you ever need parts you're out of luck so there was that whole sort of quality of being disowned by rolex and questions about whether bamford would survive as a watch department they're a big defense contractor and you know motor vehicle maker but the actual watch department is george bamford's kind of personal hobby so the question was if this isn't a rolex with rolex factory support is it going to be supported by bamford five ten years down the line whereas with all these tag hoyer and zenith watches they are truly regarded as factory pieces because the relationship is official and with les arts saint de genève when you're paying $250,000 for a Daytona, you're getting it. This is like getting a tailored suit. It's like getting a singer reimagined 911, where the price of the Daytona might be $13,000, and then the rest of the quarter million dollar price is customization. So if you need a part, they're going to make it from scratch for you, and you're buying a commissioned piece of art. And I think with artistic commissions, there's a different attitude than relatively low level engraving or gem setting, especially since artisan, those things yeah. at a level that would make Patek Philippe, MBNF, Richard Mille, Vacheron, all of them super proud. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. Okay, so going back to new releases, um, what has wowed you and what has disappointed you? Oris, oh my gosh, Oris, I love you. Thank you so much for this new caliber 400, <laughs> the Oris Aqua State. 10-year warranty on a $3,300 watch? Yes, please. This should be universal. I, I'm not going to name names, but basically any name I mention in the watch industry does not offer a 10-year warranty. I think Fabergé gives you the opportunity to register the watch and through various means extend the warranty out to 10 years. But you got to ask, where is Patek Philippe right now? Where is Vacheron? Why is Grand Seiko still doing three years in a world where Oris can sell you a watch priced at you know, effectively a couple of gold links from a Rolex Day Date bracelet, but you're getting a watch with a 10-year warranty, 10 years between services. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very pleased by that. And I would have to say, disappointment-wise, I have a collective disappointment. Uh, it, the whole industry failed to innovate this year. Other than okay. Oris, I can't think of a single paradigm-changing watch that managed to truly reset our expectations for product quality or customer service. I can't think of one for technology, for value and pricing, for mm -hmm. longevity, durability. I, I can't yeah. a single breakthrough. All the watches we talked about, the UR105, the, mm -hmm. the triple split from Longa, the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we talked about the DB27 from Debetun. These are all variations on existing watches. There's no innovation there. And I think if someone had come out and said, look, we can now give you a hand-tuned minute repeater for $20,000, or we can give you a watch that has a 10-year warranty, you know, and, and comes from the likes of Rolex, Breitling, or Omega, you know, a mainstream brand. Because, you know, in, in the U.S., 
Hyundai would sell cars with a 10-year, $100,000 warranty because they wanted mm -hmm. to be taken seriously as a quality car manufacturer. So they had mm -hmm. to submit to a higher level of proof than say Mercedes-Benz, which at the time was offering, you know, three years, 36,000 miles. Well, mm -hmm. other than Oris, no one is breaking through that barrier. Richemont's starting to offer eight-year warranties on some watches. Um, we're also not seeing watches that are, I mean, I will say this, Frédéric Constant with the mm -hmm. slimline manufacturer monolithic, that is an incredible technology to release under $5,000. But I worry about the future when so much of the inside of a watch can be machine made. So I'm going to mm -hmm. shout them out for a paradigm change, but I'm not sure it's all for the best because the watch is now extensively computer crafted using a chemical process. You can't mm -hmm. make, finish, or repair those components by hand. Okay. Last one, um, Watches and Wonders, mm -hmm. March, I believe it's March, right? March, 2022. I want to say, yeah, it's going to be the end of March, beginning of April. Uh -huh. It's going to be where the combined Basel and SIHH was supposed to be last year. So do you think it's going to happen or? Um, I do. What are you okay. I, I do, because right now Dubai Watch Week is on the calendar. And as okay. of right now, I can tell you, I will be at Dubai Watch Week and I have all but purchased my tickets. So okay. other than booking a plane and a hotel, I've already spoken to other people in the industry at Watch Time, at Quill and Pad, folks I know from watchprosite.com who are going to Dubai Watch Week. And because you have to really work the whole year, if you're Ahmed Siddiqui and Sons, the regional dealer, you got to mm -hmm. work the whole year to set that up because they sponsor the show. They, they organize it. Yeah. And yeah. if they're planning this for November, late November, then I guarantee you next spring, more than a, you know, basically a year from now, we're going to see that Watches and Wonders. The question for me is whether Watches and Wonders breaks out any of its previous locations, like Shanghai, like Miami, like Hong Kong. Does it re-extend that ambition to become a franchise around the world? That's the real question. I can't answer that. I, I honestly think they would do Shanghai because they did Shanghai this year. It was just that it was very quiet and not many people knew about it. <laughs> totally right. You're absolutely spot yeah. on because mainland China this year is the number one watch market in the world. A lot of the tourism yeah. that used to go to Hong Kong doesn't anymore. COVID restrictions mm -hmm. are mostly relaxed. China's recovered from that for a couple of months now. So you're seeing mm -hmm. incredible sales in mainland China. Hong Kong is not recovered. The United States has actually supplanted Hong Kong as the second largest market. Hong Kong is yeah. number three after decades is number one. And I'm not yeah. sure it's ever going to be number one again, but there's no way we don't see watches and wonders somewhere in China next year, probably Shanghai. Yeah, agreed. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, this has been a hell of a lot of fun. Long, long, we need to do this again. Are you game? Um, very good. This, I had fun. I mean, like, I feel like there's so much to ask you and like, I just want to like, you know, squeeze all that like <laughs> information out from you. The very interesting. Trivia? Yeah, I've got useless trivia coming out of my ears. I hope it doesn't <laughs> go up on the camera. All right, guys, thanks so much for all of you who joined us. Remember to check out the Waiting List podcast. Time out, Tim out, Long Long out, and thanks for logging on. Bye.